You're listening to the Legacy Investor Podcast, Podcast, where we focus on real estate, business, and mindset. Our guests will share their experiences, lessons learned, and actionable advice to help you get to the next level. Now for today's show. Welcome, man. How we doing? Excellent, excellent. I, um, I'm ready for today. I brought my Breaking New Grounds mug. <laughs> a UNH staple. A, a um, fellow UNH R- alum. RIP, though. I think they're no longer in business. Um, when did they go out? Like, I think very recently. Maybe like, or no, maybe they're still there. Oh, you know what went out of business was Young's, the restaurant next door. Another um, staple. The, the breakfast place. They are no longer. Rest in peace <laughs> to Young's. So maybe Breaking New Grounds is still there. So It's um, got to be. Yeah. B&G I mean, catching a stray at the top of this podcast. But uh <laughs> But no, that was the spot for sure. <laughs> I mean, definitely going to be a lot of UNH folks uh, tuning into this one. But what what would you say your favorite spot on Main Street was? Wow. Um, right, let's just let, it's a bit. Let's just go with bar. Favorite bar? Well, I mean, Scorps was the bar. Um, very loyal to Scorps. Uh, you know, the the basement down there on a Tuesday or Thursday night. Um, I think that's that's what I'll be telling my kids about someday. <laughs> Tuesday and Thursday. Or maybe not. Yeah, yeah, or maybe not. Well, I'll be telling them like we were buying pictures for a dollar on Tuesday nights, which, which I mean, now that's crazy to comprehend. Let alone when I'm telling kids that. So, so Scorps was uh, that was our stomping grounds. That's where we always went. So Scorps and Libby's, right? So um, yeah. you're either one one or the other on a Thursday night, and maybe you tried bouncing back and forth, but chances of getting into both were slim. Yeah, no, you had to pick, um, and. You know, I, I don't know if it's just because the UNH enrollment went up when I was there, or like what the the actual reasoning for this was. But um, but I mean, when we started going my junior year, um, not really lines. You could go there at eight. You could get into either bar. No big deal. Like it wasn't a stressful experience in terms of going out. And then by our second semester, our senior year, like you had to be at the bar by or, you know, trying to get to the bar by 645 or you were waiting in a ridiculously long line. And it was just probably not going to happen for you. So I think we spent... <laughs> A good, a good uh, two semesters, three semesters, starting our nights out at at seven p.m., which, in hindsight, sounds absolutely psychotic, and it was for sure. But uh, yeah. yeah, different times. <laughs> I love it. So enough of Scorps. What was your major, man? And, and I guess why'd you pick UNH? Um, so I'm from New Hampshire originally. Grew up in Southern New Hampshire. Um, you know, close to home. I, I didn't really want to travel away from home to go to school. Um, I didn't even know if I was going to go to college, which is a whole other story. But um, so I was like, I'll go there. It's whatever. It's it's close. Um, that was literally all the thought I put behind going there. And um, I majored in entrepreneurial studies and finance. So I, I double majored. Uh, entrepreneurial studies is like one of those whatever majors. Not going to really help you do that much. Um, the content wasn't like that. Did that part of the degree was not worth the money. Uh, the finance side was pretty good uh, because it's there's some application to at least what I'm doing now, but. I did get pretty involved when I was there. I was in a lot of groups, so you know, did some good networking and had some good internships. So I think that was, you know, that was what I really focused on when I was there. Less so on the on the major on the academic side, and more so on the get involved with some good groups and uh, you know, get some value out of the networking. I mean, does anybody get a job in the field that their major is in? I don't think you do unless you go for engineering or you're going for like a you know you're getting your a medical degree or something like that and you're and you're going for a trade. But um, I don't know. I, I'm all my friends in the business school. They either got into marketing or they got into sales. 
That's what it's, you do. If you're going to learn how to do anything, it's learn how to sell at the end of the day. Um, yeah. Because <laughs> that's what no, most 100%. business students get into. Yeah. That's gold right there. But it's funny you say that because I was a civil major, uh, civil engineering, and never did a single piece of design after, wow. after college. So you're immediately disproving my, my theory here. Maybe <laughs> I, gotta, I have to confine it to like, even more clarified trades, you know, folks yeah. go in there for their, their nursing degree or like pre-med or what have you. Yeah, exactly. There um, you go. Yeah. There you go. You're not exactly. really going for a nursing degree and then spinning off to something too quick, but yeah, maybe there are, maybe there's some folks that are listening, but, um, at UNH, you know, you got into real estate, um, pretty avid podcast listener books, the rest of it. Um, talk about kind of your first jump and your first deal and what that looked like. Yeah. So at the time, um, I, I had a little side business where I was flipping cars. Like that was kind of how I made money. I've always been entrepreneurial. Um, never really had a job. And um, so for me, I was like, I was never, I never even thought about getting a job post-graduation. Like I was always like, what can I do after I graduate to make you know money? Um, and I was doing this car thing and, and making a couple bucks doing that. And I was like, this is not the forever plan. This is probably not going to be what pays the bills when I get out of school. So um just through learning about, you know, different ways to make money and side hustles. And, you know, I'm the kid clicking on every Instagram ad at that time about how to make a buck, you know, on the weekends. So I found real estate, long story short, tried to learn how to flip houses. Like that was going to be, that's what I was thinking would be my path. Um, as I started learning about that, I started learning about multifamily real estate and rental real estate and uh, became obsessed with the idea of building a portfolio of properties that, that paid the bills, right. Without my direct involvement. Um, so at the time, I started looking for deals, um, doing a lot of direct-to-seller stuff, sending some mail, uh, cold calling, cold emailing. And first deal I found was actually a for sale by owner on Craigslist. And uh, three-unit deal in southern New Hampshire, about 45 minutes from school. I was still in school at the time. And uh, put it together with some private financing. And, um, you know, because I couldn't get a bank loan or a mortgage or anything like that. You know, no job, no W-2, no tax returns, no credit. So... Found a private lender and um, then hit the ground running from there. So that was kind of the beginning, and then started to organically grow and you know buy slightly more deals every year and buy bigger deals, and, and that's where the snowball started. You were in college, found a hard money lender, pri- private financing to buy your first deal, and that's how you took it down. I, yeah, just yeah, get this guy it. off of Craigslist. So the guy on Craigslist was you know a longtime owner. I think he owned the property for twenty years. Um, we negotiated a price that made sense. And, uh, and then it was like, all right, how do I finance this? Right. I think I had like a thousand dollar deposit on it. So, you know, if it fell apart, it wasn't the end of the world. I mean, it was at the time that was like all the money I had, but like in the grand scheme of life, it wasn't (laughs) going to be that damaging. So I kind of put the, um, the cart before the horse a little bit at the time I worked an internship, um, with, uh, with like a small group of guys that did some angel investing. Um, this is in New Hampshire. Um, and I was like, you know, just taking notes for the meetings, getting coffee, like pure admin stuff. Um, and I met somebody through that group who did some private money lending for, to real estate investors. And, um, you know, he was like, this kid's got his head on straight. He's here. He clearly knows what's up. Um, you know, he's not an idiot. (laughs) And I think that was like 90% of the battle. And then the deal was the 10% where I was like, here's the number, you know, that I'm buying it for. Here's its current value. Here's all the supporting info. Here's the current financials. Even though you're going to give me a high interest loan, I could still pay the debt with the current, um, you know, economic occupancy and and the current NOI and all of that. And uh, 
you know, can you, can you loan me 90% of this thing and I'll go bring the other 10. And, uh, and he was like, yeah, sure. So that's how we, that's how I put the first one together. Um, just right place, right time, to be honest. And then, yeah, but yeah. you know, I think you approached it like a business, right? And I think what this is a hundred percent of business. So if you actually put the numbers together and do your due diligence and show how they're going to get their money back, right. And you're a trustworthy guy, obviously at the table trying to do the right thing. Um, Folks will believe that and folks will get behind that. Even if they know you don't know, you know, everything there is to know about real estate and there is risk there. But if you have a good head on your shoulders, you treat it like a business, you underwrite it, you go over it with them, um, your chances are significantly higher, right? Yeah. And, you know, I think too, it's like at the end of the day, it was a pretty de-risked proposition for him. Granted, I didn't have experience, right? Um, But I think that by virtue of me being in that room and being someone that, that because I, I worked hard to get in that room like that was you know those this was not an internship that existed i like forced my way into that room and created this role for me in this group um i got all of these guys to pay for me to be there like i pitched all of these guys on hey you could use an admin to help coordinate all the meetings to help bring in pitches and all this they they were just doing it as a networking event they weren't paying anyone <laughs> i could installed them to pay for my like hourly rate so so there was a mutual respect there, I think is, you know, kind of a fundamental commonality. Um, and after that, it's like, how can this deal go that wrong? Not a lot of construction. It's already fully occupied. You might get the rents up a little bit. Like it's as literally as simple as going and picking up the rents and like not burning it down. So from where he was sitting, it's like good price, you know, relatively competent individual the buildings fully occupied. It's not like he's going to manage like a GC who's doing a big renovation. Um, yeah, you know, why not, right? Build a relationship. So um, at the time, I thought he was doing me the biggest favor of all time. <laughs> I was like, I was like so grateful. But, um, but you know, in hindsight, it's not, it wasn't like, I think it made a lot more sense for him than, than I realized at the time. Damn, that's so cool, man. Well, it's going to be valuable for folks because I think, you know, they might have a similar opportunity or this might be their first deal. And like you said, get a seat at the table, no matter what you need to do, bring value, right? Folks want to see you bring value. They see that you're trying. They see you have a good head in your shoulders. You're going to take a risk. Yeah. More and, um, and you know, like, I think it's important to note out of all of that, what's probably most actionable and applicable is like, you know, be utterly overprepared and put yourself in the other person's shoes. Like, you know, I was thinking like, what does he want to see to be to feel comfortable with doing this? Um, he wants, you know, he's going to know that this is a great deal and that even though he's loaning me a big portion of the purchase price, it's not like we're, he's not over lending on this, you know, cause we're buying it at such a discount. Um, there's not a lot of execution risk, like the risk of actually running the deal is really low. And, um, and I'm interested in building a long-term relationship. And I really communicated that, um, you know, and I brought all of that up front and I had these conversations, um, you know, some level of this conversation before I found the deal. So even though he didn't agree to lend on a deal that I found, I had already been like, hey, this is what I'm doing, kind of told my story, talked about what I was looking for, talked about everything I was learning and and just, you know, had was just sharing my story just in a casual setting so that when I did find the deal, he's like, all right, he's been at this for a while. He's educated himself. It wasn't like I just woke up, contacted the first guy I saw on Craigslist, put a deal on a contract and I'm like, oh, I want to do this now. There was a lot of work that went behind it. One of the things I remember about you, I think the first time I saw you was on Instagram. And one of the things I remember was your journey to a hundred units. Was it a hundred? 
It was uh, it was 150. I had 150. Like a, I set a time bound goal of you know 150 by by 28 was like this arbitrary goal <laughs> I remember setting for myself on Instagram. And, and I loved it because I was like, wow, like the, this guy has so much so much balls for coming out here and doing this and like to- just expose right. And you would update it right every unit you would get, you would update it. Yeah, if I and sold, like a, I'd, I'd shoot the number back down. Yeah, <laughs> I love it, and um, it was it's a great way to help you know obviously hold yourself accountable, and maybe it's a piece of history that got you where you are today. But talk about that goal and I guess the journey to finally getting to 150 units. You know, wh- where did it come from? You just said it was arbitrary, but you know, how long did it take you? Did you get there in uh, in your time frame, et cetera? Yeah. You know, I got a lot of thoughts on this because my, my thinking on setting goals, um, you know, has changed since then. And I'll share that too. But um, it was something that I, you know, I was 23. I'd been, I'd graduated, you know, the portfolio. i maybe like 10, 15 doors. Like I was getting started and, um, and I was like, what do I, you know, what, what do I actually want to do? Like in terms of, from a long-term standpoint, do I want to grow this portfolio? I had my license at the time and I was working as an agent. I was like, do I want to set some goals around being an agent? And I kind of sat down and I realized don't really enjoy working as an agent. Not for me. Um, I do really enjoy the, the hunt of finding or the, you know, the pursuit of finding deals and finding money. And that's what really gets me going. So what do I need to do to actually like create a, a living off of this? Because um, it's hard. It's hard to build a portfolio that provides you with a level of passive income that that is meaningful. Like that takes a lot of time. And I was like, oh, you know, what what would be considered meaningful to me, and what do I think would be like a fun goal to set around it? So, 150 units I arrived at, um, mainly just because it's a you know it's a round number. <laughs> but at the same time, I was like, if I'm pulling in. Excuse me, you know, a hundred bucks a door. Um, that's fifteen, you know, grand a month, and and that's you know, that's a really that's for, at the time I was like, that's an insane amount of passive income, all this yeah. stuff. Um, and what ended up happening was, is I threw it up on the Instagram there, and I and I figured, hey, this will be like a cool little accountability thing. Um, and that's when I started producing content was kind of around that goal. So, um, you know, I ended up hitting that number. I'm I'm 28 now, so this was like six seven months ago that. Uh, that you know, I, I I hit it and then I took it off. And the reason that I really took it off, <clears throat> or kind of changed my viewpoint on on using that as a or u- really unit counts as a goal in general, is your unit count does not really have any reflection upon your passive income, your net worth, your balance sheet, you know, any of that. Cool. So there's completely separate things. And I and as I started doing this, I kind of matured throughout this process a little bit and was like, this is not this is not really a great way to convey what we're doing within our business. Um, and the reason being you can own, you know, 5% of 150 units or a hundred percent, like you own the units either way, but completely different economic situation for both of those. The other thing was I didn't really want to set like unit count acquisition goals or, or have that be the only goal that I set in our business because, um, sometimes it, it makes sense to not buy real estate right now is a tricky time to be buying real estate. Um, we had all, you know, we have goals for like what we want to do vaguely. We want to buy a couple hundred units this year. We're probably not going to buy a couple hundred units this year because the market isn't giving that to us. We have to take what the market gives us. It's not giving us the deals that we want right now. So we're not just going to jam a square peg into a round hole. And the a lot of the unit, you know, the, the 150 units by 28 was all in a great market environment. Like I was blessed with the environment that allowed me to pursue growing the portfolio much more so than, you know, what we're in right now. Um, and then, you know, on top of that, I think... Um, 
the business, like I, we've started to create a real business around what we're doing and it's, in a, and it's starting to detach itself from just me and it's starting to become an actual thing. You know, like our business is called Aligned Real Estate Partners. You know, we raise capital from passive investors to go out and buy multifamily, you know, real estate. And it's less just the, the actual show. It's, it's now the business. We have staff in this business. I have a director of operations and acquisitions guy. So it's not about me buying real estate anymore. It's the company buying real estate. It's the company growing. It's the company serving our investors. So, you know, I'm, I'm detaching it from like, you know, my own, my own personal goals. So, um, I probably went a little sideways in that answer and got outside of what you were hoping to touch on. No, but, um, that was but great. That, that's why I've thought about it. Yeah. Yeah. Basically took it down to, to scale at the end of the day It is is what it comes down to. And, and But I do think truly that without setting that massive goal or taking that massive action, perhaps you probably wouldn't be the way you are today. Yeah. I mean, it was a cool thing to, to shoot for. Um, and you know, like, like we, we hit it by every arbitrary metric. And oh, so here's the other piece that I forgot to mention too, yeah. is people become really interested in talking about how many units they have and how big their portfolio is. In order to continue growing that number, you inherently have to not sell. Um, and I am a huge proponent of selling real estate, which is counterintuitive to all the folks that are like, you just buy real estate and wait, you never sell compound, compound, compound. All of that is very true. And I do think that they're for for certain individuals, certain companies, that does make sense as a strategy. But when you're starting out, um, you you have to sell to free up liquidity. You have to sell to access that cash to go put into another bigger, better deal. You have to sell to access the money to make hires in your business, to spend on marketing, to upgrade your infrastructure, to buy software, whatever it is, you know, an investor relations software, you know, a, a nice piece of data software to help you go find deals off market. Like, you have to invest in your business if you want to, if that's your goal, that's assuming that's your goal, right? If you're someone who's buying a duplex every year and you'll do that for 10 years and then retire, like that's a different set of goals, right? My goal is I want to build a real estate business. Like I want staff, I want overhead. I want, I want to go buy thousands of units. Like in pursuit of that goal, I couldn't, I couldn't jeopardize the empire for just a three unit in Manchester, New Hampshire. I had to keep selling to recycle that money and keep building a wider foundation so that I could build a taller building on top of it. So I became this dumb unit count goal at one point kind of started to jeopardize my decision making process where I was like, oh, you know, I don't want to sell because, you know, I'm, I'm going the other way. When in reality, that was the best financial decision for the business, um, objectively speaking. So that was the other piece of it. And that's why we've stopped like I've stopped trying to like count our portfolio because it, it because it doesn't have any relation to the financial success of your business oftentimes. And then when you get to a certain level, right, in the thousands, it's just like it doesn't even doesn't even it doesn't matter, matter. Anymore, you know doesn't um and, and you're right it is the number one question folks ask right how many units you have and and i love that point about it's really not about that it's the money you're generating so i'm coming from a property management side right and it's always the first question how many units you guys manage it, you know whether it's a prospective owner whether it's a peer in the industry like that is the measure unfortunately on the property management side there are managers that are making or bringing in $100 in revenue per door, or they're bringing in $300 per revenue per door. You're not even like, it's not even close. Like, how do you measure these two companies? Say one's no. managing 600 doors at a much lower rate, but then another one's half that and getting triple the profit. No, and it's and it's a great distinction. And, you know, whether it's PM um, or it's just on the ownership side, like, you know, I'd rather own 20 units in Boston than 200 units in Manchester. Like, because am I making as much money with those units in Boston as 200? Probably not, but it's incredibly passive and it's an incredibly safe market. Um, right. And, yeah. 
and I'm putting myself in a position to create more value over time just by being there. So yeah, there's all kinds of nuance for sure to, to those conversations. And, uh, you know, it's a good point in the PM side, right? Like, you know, if you own, if your PM company is a hundred units in a, in a more core high cost of living area versus 500 units in a C class remote tertiary area, economics of those businesses are probably pretty similar. Yeah, exactly. So the, the hundred and, um, 150 units predominantly where are they at and, and what, what kind of assets were they were they c-class b large multi just dive into that a little bit so our portfolio is vastly comprised of small to mid-sized properties in new hampshire and, and central florida um we're probably 75 percent new hampshire right now 25 percent in florida but um but but the business is built completely around buying value add c-class deals with some b-class we'd like to buy more and more b-class uh, the reason that we don't is just just it's just harder to find them, and there's less in, right. there's less B class inventory in the markets that we operate in. So there's just less deals to look at, less offers to make, et cetera. Um, but we buy value add C class, and you know we go in there and buy property from mom and pop owners. Um, anywhere from five to fifty units in size is our average deal size. Um, you know we'd we'd like to do bigger deals, but that's kind of where that's what we'll that's what we're offered in New Hampshire, despite virtue of the housing stock mm-hmm. and uh we go in there we renovate the interiors um you know we, we we push rents and bring more value to the tenant base by you know being a better management company um by taking care of some of the deferred maintenance we renovate the common areas um and we create the value that way and um just based on the markets we're in which is mainly manchester nashua and the seacoast of new hampshire most of the multifamily is just you know c-class which is why we've elected to focus on that um, but that's that's the core of the business, yeah. Anything in Portsmouth? I don't know. I, I, I wish I owned something in Portsmouth. I lived in Portsmouth for a year after UNH. Um, yeah. I love the town of Portsmouth, man. It's one of my favorite towns. Same. So if there's ever an opportunity to buy something up there, even though it's it's a very different market than what we typically buy, and I mean, I'm I'm going to pursue it for sure. I'm putting this out, putting it out to the airwaves right there. You know, yeah, exactly. Portsmouth property, 100. Actually speaking, uh, back in Durham, didn't you recently? By building on Main Street, I did. Yeah, um, the Campus Convenience Building. So, so downtown Durham, there where Campco is. Campco. Uh, we bought that one a few months ago. Yeah, it was. That was. Um, that's a funny one to tell the friends about for sure. <laughs> a lot of laughs in the group chat. So, what are the numbers on that? Can you just go over that deal acquisition? Um, what that thing needed. Obviously, there are many folks who have been on the first floor, but who knows what the upper floors look like. Yeah, I had never been upstairs ever, I, and um, I was surprised to learn. Um, so the backstory is a, a wholesaler in Connecticut who uh, does some does some calling and mailing up in New Hampshire. Got in touch with the owner and, and referred it over to me, and I gave him a referral fee. Um, shout out Mark. <laughs> who knows? Maybe he's listening to this. Um, That's awesome. And uh, and and I was so I aggressively pursued it because that deal is an emotional one, right? We don't let emotions get into to what we do, but that one it's hard to not you know have that be a part of it. So. Um, I was doing a 1031 out of a five unit in Manchester. Took the proceeds from that deal, and um, and and that's the you know basically the down payment for that deal. Um, the purchase price was was 1.6 million. Um, so Campco is the, obviously the convenience store on the first floor, and uh, above that there's ten apartments, which is more apartments than I thought were up there. Ten apartments up there? Yeah, I thought it was maybe like a couple or something like that, but there's ten apartments up there. Um, six uh or no seven one beds and three two beds so it's predominantly just small one bedroom units so you know that's probably why we're never up there there's not really like a lot of roommate living up there it's just individuals living in the apartments um 
primarily student housing. You know, it's mostly students up there, but there's a couple of just folks that live there. And uh, so 1.6 million, the gross rent roll is, it's about 16K or I think it's about 14, 15K a month. Um, But Campco pays a share of the utilities and the taxes and the insurance. So, you know, NOI is pretty solid. I don't think I got like a home run deal on it. I think we paid slightly below market value. Um, but for me, it was like the perfect 1031 replacement. Um, you yeah. know, just getting into like a beautiful building. It's an old building, but it's in really good shape. It's, it's actually an 1850s built property. Um, but uh, but yeah, anchor building in Durham, right? I mean, that's just, you know, center of downtown Durham. So I'm always all jazzed up about that one. Well, but it's also a college rental, right? So do you have... You know what portion of your portfolio is made up of college rentals, and is or is this the first one? That's the first one, and, wow. and it's likely that's going to be the only one. Um, <laughs> I have a management company, uh, so we don't manage that one internally because it's uh, you know it's about an hour from Manchester, which is where okay. our management company is based. So yeah. I have a management company out local to that area managing it, um, and they manage a couple of student rentals, so they're like you know familiar with the leasing process and all of that. Uh, but very much a different game. I mean, it's. Um, you're just turning over every single unit every year, basically, right? With some exceptions, but um, there's just a lot more work that goes into it. And, you know, the payments are a little bit different. The structure is a little bit different from a lease standpoint. But um, but I think that we're always going to have pretty good demand there because it's like yeah. literally, you know, walkable to everything that you need to get to. So I, I think we're going to be fine. We'll be, we can compete with all the new stuff up in that area. And um, which there's a lot of, a lot of new stuff. Yeah. Tons of new development, um, which, that's the that's the part that makes it a little bit more nerve wracking is that there will continue to be new supply added, and I probably would not have bought a student rental in, in Durham if it's like, you know, on the outskirts of town. Like the only way I would have done it is if it was this, where we have this location competitive advantage, where we're just right there. Um, yeah. Yeah. For folks who aren't familiar, Campco, this building is on Main Street, across the street from the two biggest bars in, in on the campus. So. Yeah. Actually, you're gonna have no problem with that. Thing. <laughs> no, I'm I'm excited right. for I'm excited about it for sure. It's fully um, leased up for 2024. In, we have we have two units. We still got to lease up. Um, it was a funny thing. We closed that deal towards the end of the year, so like we were past when students typically secure their lease for the following year. Right. So we we came in after that. So now we we're kind of scrambling to get those leased up, and we we're offering some concessions and all that to get it leased. Um, but but we'll be fine. We'll get it figured out, yeah. and then we'll we'll be good for the following year. You're right. So we do some college rentals here in Rhode Island in um, Bristol. So next to Roger Williams University, actually been managing student rentals there since I created the management company. And it's some, you know, it's a niche that we're getting pretty good at. And you're right about those marketing periods. Like there's a, there's a finite window of when the most of the demand is looking for housing and you need to be marketing then, right. To get, to get the right folks in. Exactly. And we were we were towards the tail end of that, right? Yeah, so we kind of exactly. missed that window and we're like, hey, we'll figure it out, you know. Um so I think we 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 leased up like seven out of the ten. Um and now we have the last handful. Good stuff. Well, switching gears a little bit, getting a bit larger. Um so predominantly your stuff's buy and hold. And I I'm assuming you you eventually reached some scale to where look, you expended all your own capital. You needed to look into this thing called syndication and start pooling money to buy these larger assets, particularly in other other areas. So, you know, syndication folks think this big complex structure with you know it's this big legal entity and 
you know, did you take a course on how to structure these appropriately as a GP? And what was kind of your entry into your first syndication there? Yeah. So, you know, I, I agree. I think it's an intimidating term and concept. Um, but I always like to say, you know, syndication is just the a word used to describe how you can raise capital, right? It's, um, it's just, it's a term, basically syndication, the definition is it's just pooling capital from investors to go buy an asset of some kind, whether it's business or a business or real estate or whatever. But it's separate from all of the ways you can structure a deal and all of that. So syndication is just kind of the terminology used to pool capital together. Um, in terms of how I learned about it, I mean, it was really just podcasts and YouTube. Um, I you know, didn't really have like a mentor on it. Um, I joined some groups, like some mastermind groups and stuff like that, some networking groups. And that was helpful. But it was kind of after I'd already learned the fundamentals and they you know, helped the some folks in those groups kind of helped me iron out like the finer details of like the real tactical stuff from like a legal doc standpoint and, you know, how to actually structure the deal standpoint. Uh, but the fundamentals, I mean, you know, YouTube, uh, YouTube University and, and just listen to podcasts. Um, in terms of what we typically do, I mean, we, we hit a point, as you mentioned, where I was out of money myself. And even if I had some money, I wanted to, I, I didn't want to keep throwing all of my liquid cash into deals. Like I wanted some to stay on my end of the table, right? Bring some other investors in to capitalize the deals so that I had some, you know, oh shit money, right? Um, and, and I didn't want to be so asset, you know, asset rich cash poor because I think that's a dangerous place to be in. At the end of the day, um, you just cannot run out of money in this business. <laughs> like it's the one thing you just can't do. Um, and, and it's funny because... I think most real estate investors for, like act like that's not the case. Like we were so obsessed with putting all our money in deals, and um, and if you do that long enough, and you you just are at the wrong point in the cycle, you buy a couple of bad deals. Like next thing you know, you're in a tough spot. So I wanted to to start to bring in some other capital so that I wasn't doing that. Um, step one was just figuring out how to structure deals, uh, and the very simplistic way to do this is you raise some money from investors, you give them what's called a preferred return, which is basically a return threshold that um, that you must exceed in order to start being compensated as the deal sponsor. Um, sponsor being another word for you know the general partner, the active investor, and um, and then there's some kind of split above that above that preferred return. So, for example, common structure we've used is we raise some money from investors, we give them an eight percent preferred return. So, first eight percent worth of cash flow distributions are going to our investors, and we're not seeing any money. And then when we sell the property or refinance the property, all of the proceeds go to the investors so they get all their money back. And then they get 8% on top of that. And then, you know, we get into the to the split. And the split above that can range from anywhere from 70% to the to the limited partners and the passive investors to 30% to the GP or 50-50, whatever, right? Every deal structure is different, but that's kind of what's common. So um, 8% to the LPs. And then above that, we would typically take 30% and the limited partners would get 70. Uh, and that's how we make our money on the deal. We take that 30% of the upside of the deal. And, um, and we just, you know, aligns our incentives so that investors are treated preferentially to, uh, to us as the owners, the sponsors. And, uh, and then if we do a good job, we get a piece of the upside. So that's the very simplistic way to structure a deal like this. Now you can do this without, doing a full syndication, right? In terms of getting a, a PPM put together for 12 to 15 grand and, you know, going through the process of filing with the SEC and making sure you're, you know, compliant with all of that. That's the way to go if you want to be the most compliant with this process. You know, if you want to start raising money from 
from individuals like outside of your network that you don't have a relationship with. That's that's where you start to get into the world of syndication. But if you're just doing a small deal, you can apply that structure on a small scale, right? You know, you can go buy a a ten unit deal for a million dollars, right? A hundred grand a unit. Um, let's say you need four hundred grand to buy it, you know, for down payment, reserves, and renovations. You know, maybe you bring a hundred and you bring in couple of investors for the other 300 you make sure they're somewhat you know involved in the deal so that they're not truly passive investors which is what gets you into that syndication world you know maybe they they uh i don't know one of them signs on the loan or one of them is i don't know he, he hops on a call with you every month to talk about what to do with the property but you found the deal you're primarily running the deal you're doing all the work um you give them a preferred return with some kind of split and then you know you you keep a piece of the upside and you can just do that with an operating agreement um so I think that's where people start to get intimidated by the concept is you have the deal structure, which is one component, and then you have the legal structure, which gets into that syndication side of the of the conversation. How about the various fees? So do you take um, asset management fee as well? So we don't have asset management fees in our business right now. Um, at some point in the future, we'll, we'll likely start to charge some asset management fees, but our deals are so simplistic right now just because our investors are looking for simplicity. Yeah. Um, that we haven't started going down that road. Um, so in terms of fees, our our deals typically only have an acquisition fee. So we get yeah. paid at closing for finding the deal, for putting it all together, for getting it to closing, et cetera. Um, usually it's 2% of the purchase price. And that's you know our compensation. That's our only fee-based compensation. But to your point, you know, you can charge a acquisition fee, you know, some kind of asset management fee, a disposition fee when you sell the property. Um you know, there's there's various different fees you can charge as a, as a syndicator for sure. And look, I mean, you want to make sure that the GPs and the operators are being compensated. I think, you know, a lot of mm-hmm. these fees may have a negative connotation, but, you know, you want to make sure that these folks are profitable, right? So they can actually run a profitable business. Right? Yeah, these which is a really important out. nuance. Um, you know, we don't charge a lot of fees because our goal is to align the incentives you know, Align, that's how we got to the, you know, created the name of our business aligned real estate partners. You know, we, mm-hmm. we, we use aligned deal structures, but you're right. At some point you do have to make that cash register ring as a sponsor. Like you gotta, you gotta earn some money in the short term because if you're only being compensated by the promote, that's oftentimes three, four, five years down the line. Like that's not right. in the short term at all. And right. the GPs don't make money until they get there. Really? I mean, unless you, uh, unless the deal is incredibly cash flow positive and it's returning, you know, a cash on cash return that exceeds that preferred return, which is very, very rare. I mean, mm-hmm. if we're just speaking pragmatically, that does not happen that often. Um, so, you know, we 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 got to find a way to make some money. And then, I like to I like to use this analogy for to 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 illustrate this with investors that are so against the idea that a sponsor could charge fees. It's like, okay, well, would you rather invest with a general partner or sponsor? Where it's just them, and they're always strapped for cash, and they're always stressed for de- you know stressed for money, or one that has some fee revenue, has built a team, they got some folks in their business to help them out. There's actually infrastructure around the company. They're not going to be short term motivated to sell a deal that they have because they have to access the money. Like when you think about it conceptually through that lens, even though you might be getting fee down a little bit, you're investing with so much more certainty uh, because there's a team behind the execution on the deal versus just you know, an individual who's who's strapped for dough because they're throwing all their money in and they're not seeing any of it until three, four, five years down the line. Nailed it. Nailed it. How about the financing piece? 
So are you typically going through a broker? Did you partner up with one bank in particular? I imagine the geography has a big, let's just be, let's stick to New England um, and New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in New England, um, you know, for the first five out of the seven years I've been in this business, I was the one going out to the banks and getting the term sheets and trying to you know put together the financing. Um, the last couple of years, I've realized that it's just not a good use of like, it's not a good use of my time and um, and I'm just worse at it <laughs> than a mortgage broker. So yeah. we've started working with a mortgage broker who has an unbelievable network of local banks, local credit unions. He handles all of our financing on the buy side and then on, on, the, on the refi side as well. Um, now, you know, he, there has to be, the deal has to be big enough for him to want to work on it. Um, typically million dollar loan balance is like the minimum size deal that he'll do. Uh, so if we find a deal that's smaller than that, and it's just something I'm buying personally, or maybe with like one other partner or something like that, um, you know, then we'll go out there and I'll, I'll call up the seven banks that we have loans with right now and just ask them to bid it out. Um, I prefer to not do that, which is why we try and keep doing deals that are slightly larger. But I would be lying if I said we don't do it on occasion. Um, But in terms of who's financing our deals, it's all local banks, all local credit unions. Uh, We used to do some more bridge lending with some national bridge, you know, bridge lenders, um, finance construction, you know, finance purchase price, higher LTV. But we don't feel comfortable doing that right now with where the market is. You know, we want to fix our rate for five years. We want at least a five-year term so that we're not forced to do anything for five years. And um, you know, we went like a longer amortization period, right? So it's we're getting away from the bridge stuff, yeah. long story short. Any any IO on that? We always ask, right? Really? Um, it's uh, like IO is such a preferable way to structure a loan, especially when you're raising money because you can deliver more of that money back to your investors. Um, so at the end of the day, in the types of deals that we're doing, these small to mid-sized deals, it's hard to get an extended IO period. So oftentimes you get it for 12 or 24 months, but like it's really hard to get it for longer than that. Although I always ask, you know, they always Definitely. started nothing. I always started 36 months and usually we end up somewhere in the middle type of thing. And, and a broker can be worth their weight in gold, right? Especially when you're talking about the kind of numbers that you are in the millions of dollars, right? So if he goes to a bank and saves you a point or two, um, it, it's you know, huge. And it's he's huge. so much better at it um, because here's the big thing with working with a mortgage broker outside of the fact that it saves you time and outside of the fact that they are uh, just in the market in a more consistent basis. They know who's looking to lend money. They know all of, you know, they have a better, uh, you know, finger on the pulse. The, so that's obviously the pro, right? But there's another reason that is great is banks are so much more interested in winning a broker's business than a buyer's business because the broker is going to bring them so much more business. <laughs> like mm. a broker is going to transact on you know uh, brokering loans at a much higher rate than you as a buyer are going to go buy real estate. So, so there's that piece of it, right? And then once you're actually in the uh, lending process... You know, oftentimes a, a bank will will retrade or, you know, I don't know, there's going to be some problem as you're working through the underwriting process. Oh, we actually can't do that LTV because of, you know, this reason. Or we want you to escrow this amount of money because, I don't know, the appraiser saw some issue and, and you got to work through these little kinks as you go through. Uh, it's much more likely that a bank is not going to give you a hard time about that stuff if a mortgage broker is involved because they don't want to jeopardize future business with that mortgage broker. Um, they want to be easy to work with so that that broker brings them the next bar or the next deal. Um, so, so long story short, that's, that is a huge pro for working with a broker. Yeah. Especially an active one. So folks are interested in finding brokers. How'd you find this guy? 
Uh, so it was a referral from a, from a really you know successful investor in okay. the market that we were operating in. I think referrals is always the move here. A players yeah. know A players. And yeah. uh, so go find the A players doing one thing and ask them who the A players are doing the other stuff. Perfect. Um, and that's that's the playbook. I think I think they're really good mortgage brokers that there's a, it's a weird little uh, niche community of brokers that are that fo- I guess specialize in finding the local banks and local credit unions. You find a lot of mortgage brokers that broker like the hard money loans, the private money loans. You know, that's one side. And then you find a lot of brokers that broker like big agency lending, right? Big agency loans. But you don't find a lot that specialize in the local lender space. So that's a little bit trickier to find. You you, you know, you've got to ask for a lot of referrals. It took us a while to find someone as good as um, you know, his name's Pat, as good as Pat, who we work with. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I mean it's just all referrals, I think, at the end of the day. Perfect. So you manage all your own stuff. Up in New Hampshire, we we do, except for um, Campco and Durham. <laughs> Outside of that, that we manage all our own stuff. Yeah. On the PM company, do you have uh, what's your structure look like? Full time handyman, leasing coordinators. Just dive into that structure a little bit. Obviously, I'm I'm interested on that. Yeah, PM for side. sure. So um, we're we're not at a very massive scale yet. So that'll that'll provide some context. Uh, the management company manages about 350 units. Um, I have, a, I have an operational partner in that business that is paid a salary and also has equity in the business and is a partner in the business. So I'm not involved in the day-to-day outside of I hop on the you know a phone call every week with him and we have uh, another partner in the deal to talk about challenges, growth plans, high-level stuff. Um, but he's on the he's in the business in the office every day tactically doing the property management. Um, so for 350 units, we have a leasing agent. We have a full-time maintenance coordinator. We have three full-time... Uh, maintenance techs, and we need another. Indiv- we're in the process of hiring a, uh, a leasing agent right now to promote our current leasing agent to to be an assistant property manager, um, which is really what we're doing to free up um, our partner in the business, who's the you know his title is director of property management. But we want to free him up to to spend more time managing and growing the business instead of tactically interfacing with owners and actually executing on the management work. Um, but uh, and then our structures, you know, for our third party clients, it's very straightforward. It's depending on the size of the portfolio that you have or the building you have, eight, nine percent leasing fee, um, you know, some maintenance markups. I think what we do really, really well is manage construction. Um, you know, I know that that's kind of like uh, like one of the bolt on offerings that some management companies offer, some don't, but we do offer it. And uh, and you know, we just charge a percentage of the invoice or the total job cost to manage that. And we have a great vendor network of GCs and all that stuff. Um, so our management company manages the CapEx for all of our management portfolio. That's super beneficial. And I and I bet that those full-time folks are working on flips or other acquisitions, right, that you buy too. So you have these folks kind of on the bench that can come in and supplement construction as, as you need. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so I... Um, we don't have construction in-house yet, which is something that I would like to do at some point. I don't know if we're necessarily at the scale right now to afford hiring someone to run that business because that's, right. you know, the last thing I want to do is start running a construction company. So it's like running somebody <laughs> that can run it and then get, you know, three, four, five guys underneath that can do the work. Um, yeah. And then we could start doing our own construction. So right now we still work with GCs and vendors to do all the the, the reno stuff, the turns, et cetera. But, um, but since, you know, when you have a management company that's doing, you know, we probably do 10 unit turns every month, 15 unit turns that are anywhere from 7,500 to 20 grand. Um, like you just, a lot of these guys end up just working for you because like you're, 
Like right. you have so much work that they just end up doing your work. <laughs> so yeah. that's kind of where we've ended up with like three crews. Um, so it's not in-house by any means, but like we have such a solidified working relationship that, you know, we can just do that better than, than somebody who's trying to do it on, do it themselves. Um, and they're trying to like avoid the pitfalls. Like we, we've got all of that built out. We can just do it. And, you know, paying us is actually going to save you money because we have better pricing and we'll get it done faster, et cetera. Right. That's awesome. I'm guessing you probably wouldn't have started this management company if you didn't have your own portfolio of scale. Exactly. No. <laughs> and um, it's not dude, running. I mean, you know, this running a management company is really hard. Um, it's a really thankless job, especially when you manage small properties and you manage properties on behalf of owners that don't quite get the game. You know, and, and I don't know exactly what your management portfolio looks yeah. like. So I don't want to assume that this is something that you deal with. But like, yeah, yeah. you know, the guy who owns the one four unit building and that's their whole real estate portfolio and they self-managed it for 10 years and they, you know, I don't know, they want to go to Florida in the winter. So they hired a management company and that guy's emailing you wondering why you spent, you know, 400 bucks to repair the water heater instead of 350 bucks. Like that is what makes it so challenging. It's less the property management. It's more managing unsophisticated owners that are just scouring their statements and asking you why the lawn care is 30 bucks instead of 25 and you nailed um, it. You nailed so, it. So for us, we're trying to be so self-selective of who we work. We turn away a lot of clients um, because like this is not a big profit center. For, like we're not taking any money home at all from the management company. Like we're just rolling it back in the staff. And it's almost a break-even enterprise um, that we just have to charge ourselves a slightly, you know, below market management fee. And we just, you know, we want to do a good job. So we just keep we trying to hire ahead of what we need to so that we're never like strained. Um but yeah, I mean, dude, it is it is a freaking grind. Like I and you have to get to a thousand units to start making like at least in my opinion, like real money, like distributions, taking, you know, take home income for the partners. Um, and I think that's why so many management companies were built to service a different business, whether it's an owner's in-house portfolio, whether it's a real estate brokerage, like what have you. Um I so think that's a catalyst for a lot of them. You know, and certainly mine. I, I started buying assets uh, a year out of college and then just started getting more. And it just made so you get to a point where it makes sense. Right? Yeah. And I actually just grew fond of the business and started taking on third party clients. And, you know, my portfolio ranges from large multi owners in, you know, in Providence to whatever you're, you're a single family owner. And you're right. It's a very large part of it is just managing the clients and their expectations, like spending an hour warring or going back and forth about a $60 lock that you change on a door. It's like, just, yeah, that's what it's just, that, that's, that's the part that is so challenging about it. And, and, um, you know, and I think it's, it speaks to how you need to structure your business. Like with us, it's like, like we just don't engage in those types of discussions and some, and we are very upfront about that. We're like, we just don't do that. So, you know, if you want to get into that level of detail with your PM, we're probably, it's probably not going to be a great fit. Um, and same thing with like, well, yeah, I want you guys to manage it, but like, we want to manage the construct. We're like, no, mm. because it's all so much time. easier for all of us to do it or for, for us yep. to do all of it. I mean, like it's so much easier for us to own the entire thing versus creating these special little agreements with all these different clients. So that's what makes it challenging. But I think we've been approaching it by just not working with folks that get outside of the process that we want to create. Yeah. Good for you, man. So as far as the rest of the structure for your business on the real estate side, I mean, looking forward, are you trying to bring on more staff? Um, you have a director of operations now. Uh, and what does that look like, your 2023 goals? 
So we just brought on a director. So we brought on a director of operations last year. We just brought on an acquisitions manager to um, to call to underwrite to you know to kind of handle build the deal flow and, and work deals through the pipeline. Um, and that's going to be it from a hiring standpoint for a while. Um, I hire too early, like hundred percent those two roles, but it's because I want to build that wide foundation so that we can build the big the big building on top of it. So you know I would rather you know, not take any money out of the business, leave some money in the business to to get some get the right people in the business so that we can execute on a higher volume of deals and execute on bigger deals. Um, yeah. And uh, and for me, too, I wanted to focus on doing some other stuff like, you know, creating some of the educational content that I do and um, you know the podcast and uh, raising money. Right. That's that's where I'm spending most of my time right now is continuing to raise money. Um, and uh, and then, you know, kind of I'll help on the deal side, of course. But but that's that's why I think about it, and I think we're from a hiring standpoint, we're going to be in a good spot for like at least a couple of years, um, you know, outside of something crazy happens and you know we we start growing at a way higher rate. But um, the market it's there, hard to do that in the market right now. Is there a brokerage component that we could expect? No, so that's not something I've ever entertained. Um, yeah. You know, I, I I'm a big focus guy. I really try to stay focused on what we're doing now. You know, the management company. Um, although that's outside of our focus, it's still, it still it doesn't require a lot of my time because we have a we have a really great partner in that business. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that partner wasn't in that business, we'd shut it down and I'd go back to third party. Right? I wouldn't I wouldn't want to run that business. Like it's just not something that I could do. Um, so for me, it's, you know, staying really focused on, on the, on the bridge we're building right now. And once we get it to the other side, then, then maybe we'll entertain that. I mean, cause that is some low hanging fruit is building a brokerage on top of the management company. Like that's a natural next step. Um, but we just haven't, you know, had the mental bandwidth to go down that road yet. It's gold, man. That is gold. And you heard it first from man, Axel, thank you for your time. So you have, um, a couple things, the course, just speak yes. quickly on that and then where folks can find you. For sure. Yeah, I'll plug it real quick. So um, put together a course, launched it three, four months ago. It's called the uh, Off-Market Multifamily Deals Course. And it is just an absolute load of content around uh, taking charge of your deal flow. Um, it's all about finding direct-to-seller deals in the multifamily world, as well as building relationships with all the people that bring uh, investors deals, brokers, service providers, um, wholesalers, you know, all of the folks that can potentially be a source of deals. I get into that as well. Um, so loads of great content in there and getting great feedback from everybody that's worked through it. And it's basically just our whole playbook for how we do it in our business, um, you know, to buy a few hundred units over the last few years, which is what we've done. Um, multifamilywealtheducation.com slash off market is the URL to that. Um, and then outside of that, you know, if you want to listen to the podcast, multifamily wealth podcast, um, and then Instagram is at multifamily wealth, which, you know, I know Nick and I are connected on and it's pretty active on there. Yeah, you definitely are. Um, tons of content that Axel puts out. So please go check them out. Axel, you're the man next. The, the follow-up podcast is going to be at Camco. So <laughs> I will see you there. Oh man, I can't wait. That's going to be an all timer. We'll have to bust out the keystone light, um, for that one. So <laughs> Nick, Thanks, this is great, man. I appreciate you having me. You got it.